Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Woo! Hi, James. Welcome back. Here I am. Here you are. So I'm not going to announce it yet. I've got an announcement. I'm not going to announce it yet. We're waiting on the gods at Apple to smile upon us. And I will wait until the gods of Apple have smiled upon us to make my announcement. I will make it in our next episode. I don't know. Do I want to make it now? Well, no, I, I'm not I, make well it now. hold on. Whether or not you want to make it now or not, you have to tell me. Okay, hold I on. Everybody you. at home, we're going to take a pause. Matt's going to tell me, and then we're going to come back. Okay. Oh, my God, Matt. I, I can't believe people have to wait a whole other week to know about this announcement. I, other week. I, I hate to tell you this, James. We do not record every week. We <laughs> record about once a month. So they I record every week whether or not you're here. Um, <laughs> they may have to wait I, a whole month. I, I just sit in the corner of my basement and I cry into a microphone and then I delete the file. And that's my episode. We have had Auxier after us to do another episode. So we may not wait a month before we do our next episode. And beside, I'm going to want to make my announcement. So let's go ahead and maybe do another episode sooner than a month from now. Great. All right. So, James, let's go ahead and get to why we're here today. We better because you sent me so many pages of notes for tonight's episode, and I am terrified that it is going to be a four-hour episode. Which wow, you, you really know how to sell an episode. You really I know. know how to get the audience really <laughs> intrigued and, 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 and really raring to go. Like, like can you, like, Put a little more sizzle on this steak, please. I think they're intrigued. I think they're like, what is this terrifying topic that could turn into a four-hour episode? They know what the topic is. They've seen the title of the episode. I think that they are afraid. I think that they are quivering with anticipation. And they are in breathless anticipation right now of what we're about to say. So what we're doing here today is we're going to discuss a little novel that we've never really discussed on this podcast before. And it is a novel called The Order of Oddfish. And it is by one Mr. James Kennedy. I've heard it's really good. I read Order of Oddfish. And then it turned out you were a fan of my blog. Yes. And so we had sort of a mutual appreciation society going on where you had nice things to say about my blog. I My blog had not been turned into a book yet, and I had nice things to say about your book. And then we remained friends over email. We did not live in the same city yet at the time. I was living in New York City. You were living in Chicago. Eventually, we moved to Evanston, which is just north of Chicago. And then we started hanging out. And then we started doing a podcast together. So that's the secret origin of this podcast. And it all has to do with the book, The Order of Oddfish. All of this is like before you and I were at each other's throats, too. Like, it yes. was kind of like a beautiful beginning for our friendship. And then at a certain point, we just started to tear each other apart. But th- there was a real, like... It kind of like Mario like swallowing a star and being invincible for a while, which like things were really going well. Yeah. That's what went wrong. <laughs> so, we started the podcast. What went wrong? <laughs> so so this was now we were already bickering before we started this podcast, because that was the whole reason I we decided to do this podcast was to capture our bickering. Right, right. But so I decided, you know, I have another book coming out soon called The Secrets of Character, in which I will talk about how writers get us to believe in, care for, and invest in their heroes. And I decided, hey, I never did The Order of Oddfish. I reread the book. The book is very good. I enjoyed rereading it. And then I went ahead and did two of the things I do on my blog. I did an annotation project where I went ahead and annotated the first 10 pages of the book 
And then I went ahead and wrote a Believe Karen Fest post. You can see both of these at secretsofstory.com. They will be linked to it in the show notes for this episode. The, one of the things about the book that's interesting in terms of like talking about spearwriting structure and all of your advice and everything is that this book is written entirely intuitively. Like I had never taken a writing course. I had never really like looked into writing craft books or anything like that. So it's, it was fun to go back and reverse engineer and see how the book like lived up to or did not live up to or subverted certain expectations of what is usually in a story. So let's dive in. Why don't you give us a quick description of The Order of Oddfish for anyone who hasn't read it, even though we've been recommending it on this podcast for five years? <laughs> okay, well, if yeah, if they haven't read it by this point, it's their own fault. Exactly. Uh, um, so The Order of Oddfish is a YA fantasy novel. It's supposed to be in the vein of like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but also Confederacy of Dunces, some H.P. Lovecraft, some Roald Dahl and J.K. Rowling. Uh, the story is about a young girl, Joe LaRouche, who was found in a washing machine when she was a baby with nothing but a note that says, this is Joe, please take care of her, but beware, this is a dangerous baby. And the reason that she was thought of as dangerous is that she was actually born in this fantastical metropolis that's not quite part of our world, a kind of urban Narnia called Eldritch City. But when she was born there, it caused a citywide emergency, in which half of Eldritch City was destroyed and many people were killed because an evil cult uh, called the Silent Sisters believed that Joe was a reincarnation of their monster goddess, Ichthala, the all-devouring mother, who they thought was going to eat up Eldritch City and then eat up the world. Joan is taken away and brought to our world, where she's raised by her Aunt Lily LaRouche. Thirteen years later, through a bunch of crazy events, Joe and Aunt Lily are brought back to Eldritch City, but Joe can't tell any of her new friends there who she really is, or else everyone would turn against her again, just as they had when she was a baby. Eldritch City is really afraid of the Ichthala. They take the all-devouring mother seriously. So Joe joins a group of knights that her parents have been in members of called the Order of Oddfish. Uh, each knight in the Order of Oddfish studies some different useless, ridiculous branch of knowledge. So one knight studies unusual smells. Another knight studies ludicrous weaponry. One knight studies the science and art of dithering and wasting time. And Joe falls in love with her true home of Eldritch City. She makes friends and enemies. She goes on quests on flying armored ostriches. She hangs out with this group of three-foot-tall, vain, well-dressed, talking cockroach butlers. But she finds for her horror that she is, little by little, turning into the monster goddess the Silent Sisters said she'd become. She has to find some way to stop this prophecy before it comes true, and she destroys Eldritch City and the world. So yeah, I mean, there is, you know, you've got a lot of influences here. I'm definitely seeing the doll. I'm definitely seeing the Douglas Adams. I'm definitely seeing a little bit of H.P. Lovecraft, which is a little weird for a book that is basically middle grade, but, mm. and of course, there's a lot of rolling here. And although it's sort of, it's sort of like an anti-rolling to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, the book is indebted and inspired to rolling in Tolkien and like Star Wars and all the stuff we talk about on the podcast. And I love all that, but I wanted to do something that those stories weren't doing. I, and I, so I had this idea of Oddfish being an inversion or a reversal of those stories. Like a lot of stories are about a young man who's a chosen one who's going to save the world. And so I thought, what if I reversed that and wrote a story that was about a young girl who is a cursed one who is going to end the world? That's something I hadn't seen before. And I so even though a lot of the book is funny, or at least it's supposed to be, on second glance, it's like it owes more to Philip Pullman's his dark materials than to like Harry Potter. Yeah. I grew up loving the stories set in Narnia or Middle Earth or Lord of the Rings. But I always noticed in those stories, the heroes were always going for long hikes in the woods or climbing uh, the yeah. mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reading Lord of the Rings to my daughter right now. And oh my God, the walking. Oh, the walking. <laughs> a lot of long hikes in the woods, a lot of climbing up and down mountains. And so I, I've never read a good fantasy that was set in a city 
that was about urban life. It seemed like there's a lot of untapped material there for fantasy. So setting the Order of Oddfish in a fantastical metropolis was kind of like a reversal of those rural fantasy novels that I loved growing up. Yeah, and I think you're a city guy. You know, you're you're not living out in the fields. You're taking it, and I think it does work. But so what we were going to talk about today is whether or not various things we have discussed on this podcast over the years apply to your book. Now that mm. we can go back and look at your book, now that you have talked so much about story theory and various ways in which stories should be written, if you had applied any of these then, would they have worked? Would they have helped you? Would they have hurt you? So before we begin, let's go ahead and talk about what's going on in this first scene. So Joe has been raised, and she was a baby, by a faded Hollywood starlet named Libby LaRouche. And they live in a palace called the Ruby Palace, far out in the desert. And in this first scene, Libby is having one of her infamous blowout parties, right? And this is a Christmas costume party, and things have gotten a little out of hand. And we begin with Joe. She's spying on the party guests, but then she gradually realizes that there is a Russian named Korsakov and a cockroach named Sefinu, and they are there to recruit her to the odd fish. So whenever I do a BCIP, is Believe, Care, Invest, I always talk about why this character might be hard to identify with. So what you're sort of trying to overcome with your Believe, Care, Invest tricks uh, and so I talk about Joe, it's always a little tricky having a hero who wants to shut the party down. And that's the first thing we see Joe doing is everybody's having a wild fun party. And she's saying like, we shouldn't be having this party. We yeah, should be settling she, down. No, she's not saying, she doesn't want to shut down the party. She wants to watch it. She wants to spy on it. She's not saying this party shouldn't be happening. Yeah. I go out of my way to say like, she's enjoying the party. She yeah. looks forward to these parties and she enjoys them. She's uh, separate from it. She's not quite part of it. But she's by no means saying this party has to end. Everybody, everybody get out. But I, I found her to be a bit of a party pooper in that first scene. And But this speaks to a larger thing is I get the feeling that Joe is not your favorite character. I love that Joe. That you, that what? I love her. I love her. I think like, you do love Joe. And I agree. But I think that you just really enjoy writing some of the other characters. I mean, like, one of the things that keeps coming up, and if I'd given you notes, I would have asked for less of, is long series of insults. You love coming up with long series of insults and rants, and several of your characters go on long series of insults and rants, and then when it's Joe's time to do it, she has to have someone else write her insults and rants for her. So her character is based on uh, my best friend in high school, Carrie, who... Uh, she was a very kind of like not extreme or weird person, but she surrounded herself with extreme and weird people. Um, yeah. And and she was like kind of sardonic and would subtly undercut people with what she would say, even if they didn't know like they were being undercut. And that's what Joe does again and again. That is witty in its own way, but in a different way. It's not like a long rant of insults. It's just a couple words but you see that Joe has gotten her own back. That right. She... Well, that's one of the first lines is that Korsakoff and Safino are two of the people from Eldrick City who have come to sort of fetch her. And Korsakoff says, I've dispatched my partner Safino to patrol the ground for suspicious characters. And then she just responds, you're the most suspicious character I've ever met. So she's, you know, she's, we always like characters who throw other people's language back in their face and who are undercutting them. And often my wife points out that you can tell that a woman hero is being written by a man when she doesn't have enough of a sense of humor. But Joe does have a sense of humor. Yeah, it's not as flashy and ostentatious as the long rants, but that's what makes her different from everybody else. That's her like argument tactic, as you would say. Yes. So I, but, I, I disagree that I don't like her as much. Like, I like her quite as much. I love writing the kind of mordant, 
one-liners that she does that aren't as flashy, but I think are just as funny. Yes. But then I say, but, you know, I say the three authors who seem to be the biggest inspirations here, Roald Dahl, Norton Jester, and Douglas Adams, all have in some of their biggest books, party pooperish heroes surrounded by wilder, more fun-loving characters. Yeah. So if you look at books like certainly Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you see that the character is the stick in the mud who is not going along with the wild stuff that's going on around them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this is a comedic thing to do. I mean, same thing in like Seinfeld. Jerry is the least interesting character in Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, But that person anchors everything. It's very difficult to have the viewpoint anchoring character be the craziest character. I think the only person I've seen pull it off would probably be Confederacy of Dunces. Yeah. Um, And case, even that case, it's a multiple viewpoint novel. You're not always with Ignatius Riley. But let's go ahead and talk about why we believe Karen invests. So I think we do believe Karen invests in show. I don't think that she is, as opposed to some party pooper characters, she is not a non-entity. She is, she is a, a fully realized, compelling character. I think we believe, you know, obviously the number one way to get us to believe is having their life have vivid details in it. And certainly I would say the book's greatest strength is just the abundance of odd details. It is an odd book, as the Thank title you. warns us. And it is filled with just odd lists of things that certainly make everything feel vivid and real. I talk about how the Ruby Palace, uh, where this party is being held, comes alive instantly with sights, sounds, and smells. Show closed her eyes and inhaled the familiar smell of Aunt Lily's parties, the lemony smoke of tiki torches, the clashing flowery perfumes, the warm musk of cigarettes. And there is certainly no shortage of adjectives and adverbs in this book, but well used, I think. I like all those adjectives. I like levity. And I talk about how everybody in the book, like Korsakoff and Sefino, I did like how not only did they have strong personalities with different obsessions, yeah. Korsakoff is obsessed with his digestion, Sefino is obsessed with his reputation, but they also have unique syntax. That Korsakoff has a very Russian syntax. And he's um, also kind of a militaristic syntax. Yes. And uh, everything really comes alive. The whole the whole world really comes alive. Um, and the fact that it's a costume party is great. The fact that it's a Christmas costume party, which is a unique detail and, you know, gives you, in some ways, the best parts of a Halloween and Christmas setting. I love and parties. You know this. You love parties. I would, you know, I talk about in my annotations how... I had a film professor, a screenwriting professor named Elias Scotch Marmo, who had a lot of success as a screenwriter. And at one point, she's like, you should have a party every 20 pages in your screenplay. Every 20 pages, all your characters should come together for a party. And basically, your screenplay should be a series of eight parties. And like all screenwriting professors, we were like, okay, but you don't mean every screenplay, right? <laughs> and she was <laughs> like, no, every screenplay. You have to add eight parties right now. <laughs> was, she had strict rules, but uh, but certainly reading your book, I'm like, Malia Scarchmarmo would definitely approve of this book. There are parties every 20 pages in this book. I love um, to write party scenes, but you know, I, actually, you mentioned something in your annotation. You, you said, you flagged me, you said, like, I, I said, like, from the highway, the ruby spout, palace sparkled silently come a couple of miles closer though and you could hear the buzz of voices and you flag that you're like is there a name for novels that address the reader directly it sort of turns the reader himself into the point of view character i think that in the first page or two go ahead and use a second person go yeah. ahead and say you you see this you see that and then leave it behind yeah uh, that's what, what you do you pretty much just do it the once it's just as a way to build a bridge it creates an intimacy or an immediacy with early use, there's no need to ride it 
because everybody knows that a story is a thing that's told. There's a teller. Um, and there's a bridge between the reader's world and the world of the book. But once we're in the book, we don't need it anymore. But it's yeah. okay to do it in the first two pages. And I wouldn't have brought that up if you hadn't flagged it like that. Yeah, I wouldn't say I flagged it. I mean, I, I noted it. I thought it was interesting. I annotated it. No, I thought it worked. Um, so let's go and talk about why we care. You were not a big bag of tricks at the time, but you used the classic trick for getting us to care about a character. She, we begin with something that happens so many times in literature. She overhears herself being criticized. Mm. So there are two people at this costume party, one of whom is dressed like a UFO, the other whom is dressed like an eggplant. And it says, did you see, whispered the eggplant, Liddy's gone nuts again. She's the washed up actress who is throwing the party. Liddy's gone nuts again, cracked as a crawdad and worse every year, said the UFO. I love cracked as a crawdad. That woman's going to hurt herself. It wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the poor girl. Do you know I've never even seen her? I heard she's some kind of freak, actually, said the UFO. Remember what the newspaper said about her being dangerous? So this is just classic writing. And you were, when we discussed my involuntary, you were like, really? She's overhearing this? You know, <laughs> isn't that a little bit of a hoary way of writing a scene to have a character overhearing other people talking? You were down on me for having an overhearing scene, but I think they always work. I think it worked just fine in my script, and I think it works well here in this okay. novel. So, and I say that we care about her because she's an introvert stuck at a party. Everybody feels that way when we read. We all feel like we like her because she's a spy at the party and she considers herself a spy and she thinks about herself as a spy and we always like spies. And But we care for her because she is sort of frozen out of the party and it says nobody noticed her in her plain black dress. She preferred it that way. She hated attention. And yet there's this wild party going on. So anything that makes us feel like we are reading a book, you know, yeah. like we are, every reader is a spy. Every yes. reader is someone who is spying on all of these conversations you're not supposed to be overhearing and you're also spying inside somebody's head at their actual thoughts yeah you're then... a spy and you're a detective you're a voyeur and you're trying to figure out what's going on yes so let's talk about why we invest so i would be interested to know to what degree this book predated harry potter i mean obviously when you sold this book the harry I... potter series wasn't even finished right the, the i mean i sold the book in 2006 it came out in 2008 in both cases you know, the parents were part of this heroic order, and they died fighting alongside this heroic order, and then the baby is left as a foundling, uh, not on a doorstep in this case, in a washing machine, which is a fun little twist, and is raised by someone else who is, raises her without knowledge of her heroic past. But not a negative person. Not, not anywhere near as bad as the Dursleys. But in each case, the child is marked. Harry is marked by having a lightning-shaped scar on his forehead, marked as having as having fought some sort of horrible duel as a child and, in fact, being this great hero. And Joe is marked with an actual note on her saying this is a dangerous baby. So she and Harry, both dangerous babies. And Right. In both it, when I was doing that, I was like, well, what I don't want to do is write Harry Potter again. What are the two things in Arthurian legends? There's wizards and there's knights. Well, instead of doing wizards, J.K. Rowling's done this, we're going to do knights. But these will yeah. be like scholar knights. So they'll be like, samurai you know they they write poetry in the evening and in the morning they go out and fight and then that connected up with like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy well if they're scholar knights maybe they could be kind of like people like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy people they could study ridiculous um kind of arcane it may be dubious knowledge like they do in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yeah i'd say that works i like the and i feel like the whole idea of a child becoming a squire to knights is still not overdone i feel like there's still not the one if i know you've had 
continual interest over the years of turning this into a movie. I feel like even though this novel is 13 years old, this could be turned into a movie and not go like, oh, well, of course, you know, in the time since this novel's been written, we've had a million, you know, <laughs> kid becomes the squire tonight's things. Like, no, I feel like that's still a fairly fresh idea. So she was a dangerous baby. We like dangerous characters. We like dangerous babies. She's volatile and scrappy. She's like, says, oh, Joe didn't have time for this. Her heart was beating too hard. She had to find Aunt Lily, but she heard herself shout, hey, get back here. So she'll stand up for herself and, and demand satisfaction, at, which becomes a major plot driver in the book. And she can't help herself. She's demanding satisfaction. She's demanding confrontation in ways that she can't control. And mm. so we always like that in a character. As I, I already said before, that we like characters who throw someone's words back at them. She says, you're the most suspicious character I've ever met. And I've already said before, we like spies. So those are the reasons we invest. Mm. Okay, that's it. So that was Believe Care Invest for your book. I think it works. I think this is a good hero. I think this is a good heroine. I think she is a compelling heroine that holds this book together. We have, you know, over the course of this podcast... You suggested various things. I think you started with five E's, and then one by yeah. one, we've added five more, where you're, these are all a la carte things where you can do to help people believe, care, and invest in your story. And I have gone ahead and put some of these, not all of these, into my Believe, Care, Invest book. Let's go ahead and look at how Order of Oddfish does on your own ten E's. Can you? Will you be hoist on your own petard? Can you survive your own test? I, I think I, I slightly survive it. I think at least one of the E's has never actually been on the podcast. I think it got cut, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and so this. I think we're going to debut an E here for our <laughs> actual listeners. So the ten E's are: eat, economic activity, exercise, enjoy, emulate, explain, evaluate, encapsulate a fantasy engulfed in emotion, and eager. Um, and I, I have to say that I am so glad that I have my own crackpot system now. Yeah. Uh, um, so I didn't know, yeah, about these when I was writing Order of Oddfish, but uh, let's see how much they fulfill them now. Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna quiz you on these. The first E is eat. Go. So I don't know why, but watching someone eat binds us to them. Maybe it makes them feel more real and physical. And almost the very first thing we see Joe doing while she's spying the party from the bushes is taking a bite of a scrambled egg sandwich. Uh -huh. um, and I, I don't know if they, they, she's secretly the all-devouring mother. She's eating an egg. Maybe that's creepily appropriate. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Second E, economic activity. Yeah. So we believe in a world more when we see a character buying or selling or handling money in some way. And, okay, so Joe doesn't do anything like this in chapters one or two. But in chapter three, she does go to her job as a waitress in a restaurant at the Dust Creek Cafe. So that might count in a way. I don't know. I don't oh, sure. That, really... that okay. totally counts. That's economic activity. She's working a job. Okay, 30, exercise. Okay, we like to see our heroes engaged in strenuous physical activity. Like you say in your book, um, is a hero doing something active when the story begins? Like uh, yeah. uh, Clarice Starling running around at the beginning of Silence of the Lambs. So although Joe is actively doing things in chapter one and two, she doesn't really engage in strenuous physical activity until chapter three. She has to run and jump all over the cafe to catch a flying head. The book will make up for it later. She does plenty of vigorous physical activity in Eldritch City, but unfortunately not at the beginning. Yeah, that one, that one not as much. Fourthy, enjoy. Yeah, we like and trust heroes who know how to have a good time. And this is an often overlooked E. I feel. Uh, even though uh, Joe feels a little alienated from Aunt Lily's party in chapter one, the text does go out of its way to say she intended to enjoy tonight. You can tell that Joe relishes the sights and the smells and the spectacle of the big costume party. 
Yeah. Okay. Fifty. Emulate. Right. So we can learn a lot about a character when they pretend to be their ideal self. They emulate. Like when Luke Skywalker is idly playing with a weird model spaceship when he's hanging out with R2-D2 and C-3PO. Max Fisher has a daydream about being the most brilliant kid in class in Rushmore. Uh, Joe doesn't really do this. Uh, she definitely isn't like her glamorous Aunt Lily. She doesn't want to be anything like her. However, there is that note that refers to her as a dangerous baby. And even though at 13 years old, she's apparently not dangerous at all, it nags her. Like on page 17, it says, uh, she still had the note. She was secretly proud of it. She liked the idea of being dangerous. Sometimes Joe thought that if she was really dangerous, she would run away, just steal one of Aunt Lily's cars, drive to the city, and see what the world was really like. The idea excited at her. It sounded like the kind of stunt Aunt Lily might have pulled when she was young. So Joe wonders why she doesn't act more like that. So that's in a way kind of like frustrated emulation. She acknowledges there's a version of herself beyond herself that she's not living up to. So, I mean, in my book, I don't have Emulate. I, I've never really bought Emulate. I was running <laughs> movies past it for a while on my blog and I was going like, yeah, I'm not really seeing this. But, you know, I think this is, you know, this does not prove the value of emulation, but it's it's sort of an exception that proves the rule, you're sort of saying that, you know, she wants to emulate and she's not, and that's frustration. And so, you know, or she's thought about emulating, but it's not up to emulating. And so that becomes a sort of character note in and of itself. Maybe this is something that's more easily pulled off in prose than in uh, in pictures. Oh, yeah. No, you couldn't indicate, it would be much harder to indicate in a movie that someone is considered emulating, but has not. Okay, so let's go into 6E is explain. Yeah, so it makes us trust the hero when we see they're capable of explaining things to others. Like when Indiana Jones explains the Ark of the Covenant to the CIA guys. Yeah, we don't see much of this with Joe. In fact, for the first few chapters, people are just mostly explaining things to her. Yeah, no, she's not really an explainer. Okay, 7th E, evaluate. Yeah, so the hero makes judgments about the people around them and maybe even tells them their judgments. Um, so in your book, you say... Is a hero surrounded by people who lack the hero's most valuable quality, and is a hero willing to let them know about it subtly or directly? And I kind of do that. Joe is like the level-headed, practical, demure, calm one. But in the first three or four chapters, she has to deal with characters like Lily, who is the opposite of level-headed, Korsakov, who's idealistic and impulsive, but not practical, Safino, who's as ostentatious, not demure, and the senior citizens of Dust Creek, who are panicky and vindictive, not calm. Joe kind of keeps them in line as best she can, and she might snark at them, um, but I know this is a, I might get a quarter of the way towards evaluate. Yeah, okay. Athe encapsulate a fantasy. So we like characters who get to do adventurous and thrilling and possibly even elicit things that we'll probably never get to do. And throughout the book, Joe does fulfill this. She's raised in a Hollywood old-style mansion. The book starts with a glamorous costume party. She experiences a plane battle. She goes to a fantastical city. She fights duels on flying armored ostriches. She's secretly important. That's just the beginning. I think a lot of this, I mean, like many fantasy books, encapsulates a fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, it's a fun book, and you want to be in the book. You want to be having fun in this world, even when they're sort of being shot at by enemy airplanes and stuff. It, you know, the book is fun uh, right up until the final quarter, when <laughs> it, uh, it, the horror finally sort of catches up with it. The ninth E is engulfed in emotion. Right. We like it when a hero is honestly overcome with enthusiastic passion. For something. It doesn't have to be something big. It could be as small as, we mentioned this in an earlier episode, the movie Sideways, Paul Giamatti puts his finger to his ear when he's smelling the wine or tasting the wine. And we see something like this at the very beginning when Joe is watching and listening, smelling to the party, and she and we are 
overwhelmed by the many sights and sounds and odors. Yeah. Well, it's like the line I was reading earlier about all the smells and the, the smell of the smoke and the smell of everything else. Yeah. I'd say she's totally engulfed by emotion, like engulfed in her senses and things like that. Okay. Yeah. That brings us to the 10th E, which I think has never actually been uttered before on this podcast. The 10th E, which you proposed at one point and it got cut from that episode, is eager. Yeah, I mean, actually, this is brought up by uh, Kier Graf, a writer friend of ours. It really is brought home by you. I gave you the manuscript for um, something that hasn't been published yet, and you gave me an extremely helpful note in it. And that was like, this main character doesn't want to be in this story. Um, he's yeah. fighting the story every step of the way. And once I took your note and moved beyond that, it, it became much better. Um, oh, good. Is the hero game for the story? Joe isn't a wet blanket. Like she might be more level-headed than the weirdos who surround her, but she doesn't resist the story, and that's fatal. No, once she's into it, you know, I think that she is overtaken by events for the first quarter of the book or so. But then once we settle into Eldritch City, she's totally into it. And you know, who wouldn't be? You get to be a squire to a knight, and you get to, and there's all sorts of exciting things going on. And you know, things don't turn Lovecraftian right away. There's there's a lot of genuine pleasures to be had for not just the reader, but for the heroine as well. I think she's, I think it totally works in terms of her being eager. Yeah, no, I was rereading some of my older screenplays and there is one where it's like, this is a really great script, except for the fact that the the hero gets sucked into this crime and then he decides basically on page 30, I am done with this crime. I want to turn myself <laughs> into the police. And he spends the entire rest of the screenplay from page 30 to page 120 trying to turn himself into the police and not <laughs> being able to do it for one reason or another. And I'm like, wow, this is not like watching a hero who just wants to just wants to get arrested is not <laughs> the most exciting screenplay. So yeah, that's the tennies. And we see right. that Joe fulfills most some of them, most of them, although we might have to stretch a point on a few of them to get her in. Now, this might not be an E, technically, but another thing I said on one of our podcasts, I think it's effective to have a scene early on, I think especially maybe even in prose, is that we isolate the hero. Um, like in Star Wars, we kind of know Luke is a hero, but it's only when he's on his own, looking out into that double sunset with the music swelling, that we truly give ourselves over to him. It underlines the character. Look, this is really the hero. So having a scene with the hero on their own, musing to themselves, can provide clarity about who the hero is and give us a little boost of intimacy with them before we jump into the story proper. In chapter two, we do that. Like After Joe wakes up and has breakfast with Aunt Lily, there's a scene of her alone taking a bath. She's taking stock of her life with Aunt Lily, her frustrations and her dreams and wishes. And once we've really touched base with her in that way and eavesdropped, Oh, that eavesdrop, that might be another E, on her private thoughts when alone, we feel bonded with her so that when the adventure truly begins after she gets out of that bath, we're 100% on board. It's a kind of scene that, I don't know, you might easily cut but it because it doesn't move the plot forward, but I think it's crucial, a kind of scene like that. Well, I mean, and when we first meet her, she's spying on people, and I think that people have spies, and that I think that, you know, she's, she and she's feeling separate from the party, you know, she's, I'd say she's isolated right away. Um, somewhat intentionally, somewhat unintentionally. When I reread this book, years after I wrote it, I noticed something that I didn't know that I was doing the first time. I realized I did a version of the holy moment that we talk about in episode 22. See, I'm bringing all our episodes together. And yes, showing... this, is, this episode is the culmination of the entire podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to do any more episodes after this. Uh, um, in that episode, I talk about how many stories have their origins in this sublime, overwhelming, like pre-verbal initial image that's emblematic of the entire story. It encapsulates the worldview of the story. It galvanizes and sustains the artist as well as entrancing the audience. It's often the first thing we see in the story. 
And then after being busted down from that initial vision, the rest of the story and the artist's task is about climbing back up to that initial holy vision to transform and redeem it. For instance, in Star Wars, we begin with a holy vision of a literal war in the stars. But in it, the good guys lose and the bad guys win. But at the end, there's another literal Star War. But in it, the bad guys lose and the good guys win when the Death Star blows up. Or in E.T., it starts and ends with a sublime image of a UFO coming down in the forest. At the beginning, one of its aliens, E.T., gets stranded and left behind. But at the end, we have the same vi- image again, another UFO landing scene, but E.T. goes home. It's a similar image of both beginning and the end, overwhelming and sublime. At the beginning, it's imperfect and wrong somehow. But at the end, through the action of the story, the image is redeemed and something complete and right. And that's what happens in Oddfish. The, be- the book begins with Joe at a crazy party surrounded by eccentrics in costume who are friends of Aunt Lily, but Joe doesn't know any of them. She feels alienated from the party. All she can do is watch. And there's an insulting boy at the party, an, an incident with an apology and a gun. And in the final chapter, we also have Joe at a crazy party surrounded by eccentrics and crazy uniforms who are friends with Aunt Lily. But this time, Joe knows them all very well. And they know her too. They welcome and accept her. She is no longer alienated. And there's a supportive boy in an incident that involves an apology and a gun. I won't spoil it. What I mean to say is, so we see, just as in these other stories, a holy moment happens at the beginning in a flawed or problem-causing way, and then a version of the image is repeated at the end, made whole or redeemed by the story. I think this is a, a thing that, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a craft thing that people can use, even though I didn't realize I was doing it. Um, and, well, I mean, I think that feels somewhat, in, you know, like, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's a boy and a gun and an apology in the beginning and end. Surely you must have done what you were doing there. I didn't. I didn't. I, that was unconscious, unfortunately. Really? Um, the, the, wow. Okay. It's so I I kind of it was like uh, about like two like a year after I'd find like I was sending it around like it hadn't been accepted yet but I was sending it around like oh my god I did that and then I kind of like uh like sharpened it up a bit but it was always there Um, wow so I I think I think this is an argument for like kind of trusting your gut kind of thing and maybe there's a part of you inside you that is writing the story that you're not aware of. I think to a certain degree, this is an eldritch book. This is a book about (laughs) that is very much a dive into the subconscious of James. And I think that you were finding, I think you were, you were trying to write somewhat unintentionally. I think you were trying to do and do what, what's, what's the other Lovecraftian word? It's arcane sort of Ah. that you were sort of tapping into your subconscious, tapping into your id that you were sort of reaching, there are a lot of tentacles involved. And I think, <laughs> that, I think that there's, I think you were discovering, you were doing things you didn't realize you were doing because you were allowing yourself to write in a sort of, in a way that was tapping into your own unconscious and your own abilities that you didn't necessarily know you had. I think that happened in my second book too. And it's, I think it's telling that when I tried to go all craft after Oddfish, and I tried to write a bunch of books, like, okay, I'm going to take all the advice I got, and then none of those, no, I couldn't get anybody interested in them. And I was like, I have to throw all that aside. I just have to write from the gut again with Dare to Know. Suddenly, I got an agent again, and then I got a book deal again. Right. And, it, and I thought I was so clever, and I was like, oh, well, now that I'm in the world, I'm going to follow all the advice, and I'm going to nail it. And I, maybe we might not have any choice but to give ourselves up to our demons. Right. Yes. 
dive into the subconscious, dive into your own subconscious, find the snake in your basement. I think that the book is, you know, this is a book with a lot of digressions. You know, a lot of the digressions I liked, like the whole war between Sefino and Mr. Chatterbox, which was that a reference to Evelyn Waugh's vile bodies? Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I deserve some points for catching that. You, you do, you do, you do. That was great. Uh, I mean, a obviously, obscure Ch- reference. Uh, Chatterbox in Vile Bodies is a kind of pathetic figure who ends up putting his head in an oven, uh, if I remember correctly. Yes. Uh, so in the book, for those who haven't read it, there are these cockroaches who are the butlers for the Order of Oddfish. They're like three foot tall. They're very ostentatiously and foppishly dressed. And they're a very upper-class British twit way of speaking. They um, are only concerned with their own self-indulgence and their, how they're spoken of in the tabloids in Eldritch City. And Safino is one of them. It's not just a completely irrelevant thing. Because it's like, Joe, she has a plain style. She doesn't want to be notorious or in the spotlight. And so you bring a character like Safino who has a foppish style, and he craves notoriety in the spotlight. And that kind of throws her character into relief. And his story is one of the stories that's kind of a comic reversal of her story. The other one is Ken Kang. That brings us to your amazing chart, which we will go ahead and put on the blog. And we don't necessarily have to read the whole thing here, but you figured out, and I think you have just figured this out today. No, no. No. no, this is uh, so I, I I remembered that I had a chart like this, and I tried to recreate it from memory, and, and then I I looked through my papers and I found an old version of it, and then I kind of rewrote this chart based on stuff that we have discovered together. So in the chart, there's Joe in the middle, and there's going out from her is all these various things about her, and then for each one of those things, there is a character who brings that out of her the most. Um, yes. And then those characters themselves interrelate to each other in a way that that is kind of contrary. So and when, I mean, you're basically saying how each of the eight characters of the ensemble that surrounds Joe are the negation of her in different ways by design. So the, okay, so this was not something you just discovered. This was this was by design. You figured out that I'm going to have Joe. And she is going to have eight characters who are all the negation of her in various ways. So you say Joe has plain style, doesn't want to be notorious or in the spotlight. The negation of that is Sefino, who has foppish style, craves no writing the spotlight. So right. you say it's- Joe is afraid people would hate her if they knew her secret. The negation of that is her fellow squire, Ian. He is honest, has specific grudge against the Ikthala, which is the monster she suspects herself to be, would hate Joe if he knew, best friend of Joe. So then you go, Joe's biggest fear is she fears, am I the bad guy? She doesn't feel like a hero of the story. She's lying. And her negation is Fiona, who she ends up fighting in the duel. Fiona actually acts like the hero. She's active, resourceful. She uses tricks and traps, which is surely something you got from me that was not part of the original. That, uh, I, that wasn't part of the original, but however, I realized that. Yeah. Yes. Has expert knowledge, You know, is forthrightly doing the right thing. And anyway, we can go all the way around the circle. We can post this on the blog. It is amazing. And then there's little connections between each of these characters. So then between Sefino and Ian, there's little connections. So each yeah, Sefino is like this. pleasure first and Ian is duty first. Or Ian is totally loyal to Joe, whereas Fiona is total enemy of Joe. Now, while I was writing this, did I totally have this all under control under page one? No, obviously not. However, And that's I- good. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I wrote it, and then I, as I was refining it, I was like, 
oh, this is how I refine it. And then this a, a version of this chart came out. Did it come out in time to help you or was it only useful after the fact? Well, I finished the book. And then as I was trying to understand, well, why does this scene lag? What do I have to do to change it? But I don't think this chart was completely done until I was done with the book. So um, let's talk about head, heart, and gut. Yes. So th- this is one of the things that I feel is one of the greatest Matt Bird like insights of all time. When we talk about it in episode 23, so people go back and look at that. You talk about how to get really get characters crackling off each other in fun and volatile ways, you shouldn't necessarily have everyone be rounded, three-dimensional characters. Sometimes it's better to polarize them. And the basic categories that you use are head, heart, and gut, right? Right, which also line up with id, ego, and superego. And Socrates also divided the consciousness into three different sections, and lots of people do it. Yes, but yeah, I, am, I am the new, I am the Socrates and Freud of our day. And yes, it, I do it in my own way. <laughs> and, 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 and I think you do a great job of it. So the head is reason. They say, I think. It's a smart, analytical, maybe unemotional character. They lay down the law about proper behavior. They often have the plan, but they might also be a stick in the mud. Think Spock or Princess Leia or Hermione Granger or Harold Ramis's character Egon in Ghostbusters. Right. And so right. the heart is the kind of character who says, I feel, or who will get hurt? And they're emotional. They're merciful. They're caring. They're sensitive. They're worried about human consequences. They're good listeners. <laughs> At one point, my son was talking about playing volleyball at sports camp, and he was talking about how the other kids were too nice about it. And Mm -hmm. I said, oh, you want the kids to be merciless when they play volleyball. And he said, well, I don't want them to be merciless, but just less mercy. (laughs) (laughs) He he, he is six and small for his age. So (laughs) his picture, picture an adorable little Moppet saying that. Less mercy. (laughs) So uh, this this heart character is Dr. McCoy, Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter, and Dan Aykroyd's Ray in Ghostbusters. And by the way, my speaking of kids, my girls are totally into the head heart gut thing. Whenever oh, they watch, are. That's awesome. Oh, whenever we watch any movie, she, they say, "Oh, that guy's head, that guy's heart, that guy's gut." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, uh, um, and so the gut is the appetite. They say, "I want," or "Wouldn't it be fun?" They're honest. They're impulsive. They're hungry. They're horny. They're greedy. Maybe they're boastful. Maybe they're cowardly, but they're always self-interested. Think Captain Kirk, Han Solo, Ron Weasley, Bill Murray's Venkman in Ghostbusters. Yeah, and then sometimes gut is divided up further. You know, so when you get on Cheers, you've got, you know, Sam is definitely the groin, you know, and then Norm is very much the stomach, and then Carla is the spleen. So these are all sort of gut characters, but the, you're dividing up the lower part of the body now into further subdivisions, which happens sometimes. And sometimes, like in The Wizard of Oz, the main character, Dorothy, is three-dimensional, but she's surrounded by polarized characters, and I think you can guess who they are. So how do... I mean, if I had to do a head-heart-gut for this book, I would say that Jo is actually three-dimensional, because right away in this first scene, she's she's very much in her head, she's a spy, she's looking at everything, but she is also a character who is a volatile character, who is a gut character, who responds bigger than she wants to. She starts off as less of a heart character, but she is a heart character. She deeply loves her aunt. She is someone who is driven to a certain extent by love. Her main driving factor is in her life is her love for her aunt. She's not on any sort of intellectual quest. She's not on any sort of gut quest. She's not seeking her own pleasure. She's not seeking 
she's not on any sort of intellectual quest. She's just driven by love. I would say that Joe is a three-dimensional head heart cut character. So this is traditional four-way polarization where you've got a three-dimensional character who is eventually surrounded by an all-head, all-heart, all-gut characters. I would say that Ian is the head character, although it takes a while for him to be introduced, and there's not a lot of head in the book until then. There is, <laughs> This is not a book with a firm head on its shoulders, I think you can safely say. <laughs> yeah, I would actually say that Lily is the heart character. I would say that Lily is someone who is lives from the heart. <laughs> um, she is She's sort of a gut character. There's a lot of gut in this book, but she is, I would say, the character who loves our heroine. She is the character who we later find out has sort of devoted her life and service to our heroine. And then I would say that the gut is divided. Say that Sefino is spleen and Karkaroff is stomach. And Audrey is cocky. I guess Audrey is cocky. Yeah, you've got a lot of cocky characters. I mean, but... Joe definitely comes into her own kind of power through meeting Audrey. Like she becomes yes. much more daring after she meets her. All right. Okay. So we've got it. I think we've gone and I think we've found that this book written naively by some, by the skin of its teeth actually did fulfill many of your points, not all, but many of the points in your book. Yeah. Well, I mean, when we met back in New Orleans, back in 2008, and I just read your book and liked it a lot and wanted to meet you and you had read my blog and you liked that and you wanted to meet me, you know, then we were we were sitting there, we were having lunch with M.T. Anderson and with my wife, and M.T. Anderson was like, oh, you know, you have a writing advice blog? Well, you know, I've never, I've never <laughs> believed in writing advice. I've never listened to any writing advice. And, and you said, oh, no, no, neither did I. Uh, I didn't listen to any writing advice when I wrote my book. And I said to you, I could tell. Yeah. yeah. Well, what you did were, you mean by that, Matt? What you did were, you mean by that? You were sort of offended by that. But I think that now you're sort of confirming that now as we go back and look at this. You're saying that I did not, you know, and I could tell when I read the book. I'm like, there are places where I would not have structured the book in that way. There are places where the book feels a little unshaped. There's places where the book feels a little unformed. It feels more like a dive into the unconscious mm -hmm. than it feels like a deliberate journey that anybody is going on but i feel like ultimately it works that ultimately you know the whole reason i was having lunch with you is because i liked the book and because i wanted to meet you and you were discovering i say this in my book this is the final thing i say in my book is that forget everything i said that's the final chapter of my book is forget everything i just said these should not be rules that you are trying to follow as you write. These should not be rules that you write down to follow before you write. These should not be rules you're trying to follow as you write. That these should be beliefs. That these should be things that you just feel to be true about story. And rather than trying to shoehorn your story in to fit them. And I feel like you had, you may not have had the lessons, but you had the beliefs. I feel like you had an intuitive sense of what was, of what to do and what not to do. And I feel like because it was so intuitive, there were places where it got very weird and it is a very weird book. And mm. I feel like ultimately, you know, could have been a more successful book, could have been a more financially remuneratively <laughs> successful book had it been a little more structured. But this is a book that just has huge fans. I mean, if you go to your webpage, like you're just, I love your fan art that you have on your webpage where. Right. I started getting this fan art right after the book came out. And so I started to reach out to these artists. So these were not people who were like, I'm going to 
be pen pals with James Kennedy and submit my fan art to him. These were people who were just posting this. You were not in contact with them. And then I, in a creepy way, got in contact with them <laughs> and, and told them, like, I really like your fan art. And they said, this is not how the internet works. Actually, they didn't say that <laughs> because it was 2008 and it was a more innocent internet. Uh, and, and so I started to encourage more and more of this fan art. And so then in 2010, we did a gallery show of Order of Oddfish fan art in Chicago. Oh, awesome. But it wasn't just a show of fan art. It was also a costumed dance party based on the Dome of Doom scene. And so people came up from the book. And so people came dressed in costume armor as gods of Eldritch City. Uh, of course, they made up their own gods. And we put them in this gallery where we had all the art hanging around. We put them in this dome and we had them fight each other. Not actually fight. We just had them battle dance. One rule was that they couldn't touch each other. And whoever won each round, we put. We, they went to the next round. The person who won the whole thing, we put her on an altar and we tore out her heart. Not an actual heart, but like a cow's heart that I bought at the butcher's the day before. And I held it in the air and went, rah! And everybody clapped and it was great. And um, You're so weird, dude. <laughs> and, and so we, we, we did this. And, um, and so all of this art, if you want to look at it, it's on Instagram at The Order of Oddfish. And if you go to jameskennedy.com, you click on fan art, you can see it all. So, James, this has been an epic episode. This has been sort of the valedictory episode. We've sort of gone back through so many past episodes and talked yes. about how they all line up with one book. It's a book that everybody at home should have read. We've been pitching it for five years. Now, if you have not read it, now is your time to finally read it before James's new one comes out. And I think our rules are validating your book and your book is validating our rules. Yeah, I, I feel so, too. I, feel, I, I think this is maybe why we became so copacetic is because we have similar ideas as to what storytelling is. And maybe we're both uh, jacking in to the same objective truth that is available to everybody. Okay. And I got to say, I enjoyed the audiobook of this one. Your reader had a hell of a field day with this book. She really enjoyed it, I think. She was fantastic. She did a lot of great different um, accents. And in fact, a, a Russian accent is particularly difficult to do. And yeah. she did it very well. She loved, she really enjoyed digging into all those accents. Okay. Well, James, thanks so much. We will be back soon, uh, sooner, hopefully, rather than later. This was a fun episode. Uh, we will talk to you soon, America. All right. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.